0: Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed... And those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Um, For those of you who have been around, you probably know, um, before we lived in Utah, we lived in Chicago for about 10 years. And in Chicago, I led a ministry of young urban professionals. So I'm talking about kids who are out of college. They finish college, and they're getting their first job in the real world. Uh, they're, they're young. They're in their 20s. They're single. They're ready to mingle. Um, it, it was... It was crazy. And, and there was a thousand of them. I'm not exaggerating. A thousand young urban professionals um, just ready. to move moving to Chicago. They're ready to party, ready to have a good time. And I'm just like, come on, baby, love Jesus more. Like, and what this means is I'm constantly doing weddings. Like if I wasn't careful, like every weekend of the summer was a wedding. Um, I had to be like, no, I just can't do your wedding. I'm just doing too many weddings. Um, and so I've done a lot Of weddings, especially during that time of my life. Um, And I've got some crazy wedding stories. I'll tell you some later. But there's one in particular that I want to share with you this morning. Whenever I do a wedding, I view it as my kind of job to make sure that every moment, from the moment the music starts to play at the the processional, the coming in of the bridesmaids, and all, the moment the music starts to play, to, to the moment like the last one walks out right? That's all taken care of. Bride and groom have the best, sweetest ceremony that they will ever have. And they remember it with joy and delight. That's my, that's my job. As soon as the last person walks out, I'm out. Baby. I'm, we're good. Like my job is over. But everything in there, there's a weight. There's a weight that I carry in that. And this, this wedding in particular, I had met with the bride and groom. We'd gone through all the premarital stuff and arranged all the details. I got a, my spreadsheets. I'm ready to go. Um, and so I've got this thing on lock. And so I'm getting ready. It's a spring day in Chicago. It's pouring buckets of rain. I mean buckets of rain. Um, they got this amazingly beautiful venue on the north side of the city. Um, and so I, I, I hop in the car. I'm driving to the venue. I uh-uh, got all my stuff ready, and locked. I get a phone call. It's a number I don't recognize. I'm like, oh, so I pick it up. I'm like, oh, it's going to, hello? It's the father of the bride. Father of the bride. He says, hey, man, uh, Pastor Knight, where, where are you? I'm like, oh man, I'm on my way. Do you need me to pick something up for you? Are everything good? Like, he's like, no, 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 we're 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 starting. I'm like, I'm like, hang on, hang on, what, what, what? like my my thing is I always show up at least an hour early, and so I'm on my way. It's five o'clock. The wedding starts at six. Like, we're good, and I know I'm good. I'm like, hang on. what? there's like, anxiety, like, my heart is like doing something funny. Uh, I'm like, what's? Wait, what? No, 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 like. It starts at 6. He's like, no, Pastor, Knight. No, it starts at 5. I'm like, N- no, sir. The- 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 uh, I-, I have the invitation. Like, be- The wedding starts at 6. It's like, no, the wedding starts at 5. I-, I start rummaging through the passenger seat. I pull out the invitation, and in big, bold letters, 6 p.m. I'm like, we're good. What's going on here? And I realize I'm that cocktail hour. I'm like, I'm going to be there. I said, Florida, I just, floor it. I just got to be, like, I get there as fast as I can. I, it's, I remember, it's dumping buckets. I'm running through the rain down the street because it's Chicago. There's no parking. I'm parked illegally, right? I can't, I don't have time to find a spot. I'm, I run in. I throw my rain jacket at somebody. I run up there. I'm just covered. I'm flustered. I have no idea what's happening. I'm like, let's go. Um, and, and they start the music and we just, we just roll and we started exactly on time. And the bride never knew a thing about it, right? I think her family hated me. But she never knew, right? And I don't know if you've ever experienced a late wedding. I don't know if you've ever experienced a crazy wedding. I've been to some of some, I got some other crazy stories, but that's for another day. But you have to understand the pressure of a wedding in order to understand this parable. And, and really, you got to understand weddings to understand the redemptive history of the Bible, right? We talked about that several weeks ago at the very beginning of the series, like this redemptive arc of human history. Right, A running theme through all of that is this theme of a wedding from the Old Testament all the way throughout the New Testament and all the way into eternity. Now, as we talk about this this morning, I want to kind of lay the groundwork for us because I don't want anybody to get lost along the way because this this might be a sermon that you get lost if you're not careful, okay? Um, It's been a crazy weekend, all right? Here's what we're gonna do. There's gonna be a lot of scripture up front because I, I want to lay the groundwork for this. Okay, so we're gonna just be in the Word a lot up front this morning. I hope that's okay. I mean, you came to church. I hope you're ready to read your Bible. Um, we're gonna get into the, to the Word of God. I just wanna, I wanna show you this, 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 this theme throughout all of Scripture of the Bride and the Bridegroom, uh, this this wedding that's coming. Okay, I wanna show you that to you, I, I, and then I wanna unpack this parable, and then we're gonna get really, really practical. All right, so I'm just gonna give it to you up front. That's what we're gonna. Be doing. Everybody on board with that? Yeah. All right. So wedding theme throughout Scripture. Uh, we're going to go all the way back to Exodus 20, right? The Ten Commandments, right? Charlton Hesson goes up on the mountain, and the first one he gets is Moses, by the way. The first one he gets is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Right, right from the get-go, we see God says, man, this is going to be a monogamous relationship. You ain't having anybody other than me, okay? You shall have no other gods before before me, right, that, that I, want, I want something special here. I, I want to be held in regard by you. Ezekiel 37, verse 27, God says to the people, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God wants an exclusive relationship with his people, right? Hey, well, Listen, I'm committed to you, I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people, like this is a mutual deal. I'm not going to have any of the people, okay? I, the, the people of Israel, that's my people. Everybody else, they can do their own thing. You're my people, but I'm going to be your God, right? Right? Zechariah 8:8. God says, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I'll be their God in faithfulness, and in righteousness, in faithfulness and righteousness, I'm going to be your God. Be I'm going to bring you into this special place. I'm going, to, I'm going to carry you over the threshold, baby. I'm going to pick you up. Or I, we're my, Into this city that I prepared for you, Jerusalem. It's my city. I, I, this is a mutual, monogamous, exclusive relationship, and I'm bringing you into my home. Jeremiah 32. And they shall be my people... And I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of the children after them. And I'm going to look out for generation after generation after generation of people. I'm going to take care of them. I will make them an, an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from them in doing good to them. I'll put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn away from me. God says, I'm going to set up an everlasting covenant, right? Not till death do us part. I'm talking forever, right? Like the type of covenant we're working on here, okay? And so I'm going to put this deep in their hearts, and I am never going to turn away from them doing good. Forever and ever and ever and ever. I'm just going to do good to them. I'm going to be an amazing, loving husband to these people who are my people, okay? Now, That's how God is portrayed. But how is Israel portrayed? Not so good. If God is portrayed as this faithful, loving husband, the people of Israel are most often pictured as the unfaithful, adulterous wife. Okay? This is the people of Israel. And we see this again and again and again and again and again and again. If you've ever read your Old Testament, you know the story. They are constantly turning away from God and pursuing uh, lesser false gods, pursuing other nations to supply for their needs, constantly turning away, constantly turning away. And he's constantly wooing them back, wooing them back. So much so that God calls a prophet Hosea. Hosea, he says to Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you, this faithful man of God, prophet of God, I want you to go. I want you to go to marry this lady who's the most promiscuous lady in the world, right? Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Like, nobody's going to be marrying this lady. Okay, everybody knows who she is. And Hosea's like, I will. And God puts this love in Hosea for her, and he pursues her. I mean again and again and again and again. And all she does is rip his heart out over and over and over and over as she sleeps with everybody in town. Right? Again and again and again and again. And God's like, that's what it's like. That's what it's like to be your God. I just want everybody to have this visual reminder. That's how I feel every time. I feel that way every time. Sorrow and pain and mourning. That's what it's like to be your God. Constantly, always pursuing you with love and kindness. And we see the prophets talk about this again and again and again. My favorite, Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a favorite word. Anybody know what it was? Anybody knows what it is? Okay, you'll find out here in a second. Uh, if you got kids in the room, earmuffs. Ezekiel 16. You played the whore. It's his favorite word, by the way. Forty times, one little letter. Um, you played the whore also... With the Assyrians. He's talking about Israel, this, these people. You played the whore with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You didn't give it what you wanted, so you pursued it with the Assyrians. Yes, you, you played the whore with them. And still you were not satisfied. They didn't give you what you wanted either. You multiplied your whoring, also with trading with Chaldea. And even this, you were not satisfied. If you want to read more of that? It's the entire book, okay? That's like, how many verses is this? <laughs> Two verses, okay? The entire book is that. You just constantly, you're a bunch of whores. Like that's Ezekiel's favorite word. It's a great book. I should read that later. But all jokes aside, right, this is the picture that's painted in the Old Testament. And the imagery continues in the New Testament, but it's actually multiplied. Jesus becomes the bridegroom and his church becomes the bride. Jesus uses imagery throughout his ministry Uh, One one famous time is Jesus being challenged on fasting, right? His disciples aren't fasting. Now, the disciples of John are fasting, the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? He paints the picture of the bride and the bridegroom. He says, can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's not how this works. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days Will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Right? Jesus is saying, Listen, I'm the bridegroom and I'm with my people, I'm with them, I'm with my disciples, I'm with my followers. They're not gonna fast, right? This is the feasting time, right? But there's a day coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. And there's a day coming when the bridegroom will return to take his bride home. Yet in the meantime, while he is present with them, Fasting and longing for his return are not necessary. It's not necessary because he's with them. The Apostle Paul carries this language through his epistles, Uh, famously Ephesians 5. You probably know Ephesians 5.25, talking to husbands. He says, husbands, here's your job. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, that she might be holy without blemish, right? It's this picture of, a, uh, of Jesus cleansing a people for himself, washing them white as wool, pure as snow, by his blood, by the water of his word, right? That, that he might invite this, this woman, which is us, it's me, and it's you, it's his bride, to the wedding. Say, now you're ready. Now you're ready to become my bride. He does all of the work for us. The church is the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus has chosen his bride. He's laid down his life for his bride. And now the bride sets herself apart for him and for him alone. This is the cry of every true follower of Jesus, I belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. The world has its hooks and a lot of things, and a lot of people. A lot of people belong to a lot of things, but for the true fall of Jesus, I belong to Jesus and Jesus only forever and ever and ever. And one day he will return for his bride, and when he does, there will be an, internal, an eternal wedding feast. We read it earlier uh, during, at the beginning of communion from Revelation 19. Revelation 19, last verse, and then we're going to turn the ship here. John sees this picture, and the angel says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him, Jesus, give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It is granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is, it is the righteous deeds of the saints. If you were here a few weeks ago, the deeds that he has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Okay, It's God's handiwork that has made us righteous. And the angel said to me, Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Right? John, seeing this vision, blown away. Right, If you remember earlier, uh, we read the whole text. Right? The angels are like the peals of thunder, like the roar of many waters, this great multitude singing the praises of the Lamb. And John is just like, oh my God, look at this. This is amazing. And the angel's like, hey, buddy, listen up. You need to write this down. Right? Well, write it down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. Okay. This is the theme of Scripture. Okay. God pursuing his people again and again and again and again, them rebelling against him again and again and again and again, playing the role of the whore, until one day Jesus says, man, let me, let me transform your heart. Let, let, let me get a hold of your heart giving his life and cleansing us from our sin, cleansing us from our unrighteousness, placing his spirit in us, that we might have a new law within us, working against the old law, pursuing Christ until the day we die, that we might be invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the narrative. That's the theme of scripture. That's a redemptive history from the beginning to the end almost. And yet, here in our story today, we have 10 virgins which is just another, in Jesus' day, that's just young young women, teenagers, teenage girls, okay? Not married yet. There's 10 girls who are all invited to the celebration, all invited to the wedding feast, but only five make it, but only five make it. This parable is not a feel-good story. It's a warning to us that the entire arc of history is moving towards one moment, A marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And while everybody's invited, listen to me, everyone is invited. Not everybody makes it. Are you tracking? Ish? Kind of of important, okay? That's what I've been spending the past 15 minutes setting up. All right? Everybody's invited. Not everybody makes it. What happens in the story? Okay, first century Israel... Okay, this is a large wedding processional. This has been common for every wedding because everybody knows each other. There's no, there's no social media. There's no school activities or programs. You live in a village and everybody knows everybody. Even in larger cities, everybody kind of knows everybody. Okay? It's, like, it's like living in college, like a dorm room for your entire life. Everybody just kind of knows everybody. I guess that's how it is um, back in the day, first century Israel. And so when you get married, everybody's invited to the celebration. Everybody comes to the feast, okay? And what happens is they would have a huge processional to announce it's happening. Like today is the day. Maybe we're singing, we're banging drums, we're playing instruments, and we're going through the streets as the bridegroom. And everybody comes out, and, and usually it's be at night, so we're lighting lamps and we're lighting torches. And can you just picture it? Just, At night, there's no, you know, there's no light bulbs, no electricity. Just thousands of torches, hundreds of torches, right, following along as they move to the bridegroom's house or his parents' house or wherever they're going to have the feast. Right, everybody's coming out. Now, these girls, we're given the picture here that they're probably in some way, shape, or form associated with the bride. They've gotten themselves ready. They're all dolled up. They're ready to go, and they've gathered together uh, to kind of get ready for this, to celebrate for this. And, And it's nighttime. They've all got their lamps. Their lamps are burning. And the bridegroom is delayed, okay? Late wedding, late wedding start, okay? Anybody ever been to a late wedding start, okay? The, the latest wedding I've ever been to was I think it was three hours late. Yeah, wow, all right, it gets crazy, all right? Three hours late. And so these girls, these young, they're young girls. They're young girls, they're hanging out with their friends. Get a little sleepy. Listen, this party's gonna go on for days, okay? This first century Israel wedding is gonna go on for days. Might wanna get a little sleep. They all take a little nap. And then in the middle of the night, they're all sleeping. In the middle of the night, they hear the cry out in the distance. The bridegroom's coming. We gotta get ready. We gotta go! Like it's now. And so they get up and, and their lamps that were burning have now gone out. And so they trim their lamps. And the five wise ones add a little oil to their lamps because they got a little flask, a flask of oil. Okay, it's not that type of party. Okay? A flask of oil, they add that to the lamps. And then the five foolish uh, girls are like, hey, give me some of that oil. like, we don't have enough for you. And they're like, well, you got to go buy some. So they run out to the store to buy some oil. In the middle of the night, in the meantime, the bridegroom comes. And come, bridegroom goes. They come back, and it's already gone. They've missed it. So they run to the house. They bang on the door. They let us in. But the door's shut. He says, listen, I don't know you. I do not know you. They miss out. I think so many people put off the most important things until tomorrow. Maybe you've done that before. I think we all have in some way. There's certain things that are probably pretty important in life that you've procrastinated on. Some small things all the time. Some of us, some big things. And many people do this with their faith. I mean, when I get married, then I'll take my faith a little more seriously. I'll pursue a relationship with Jesus, and I'll spend some more time in the Word, and I'll go to church, and I'll do all these things. You know, when we have kids, I want to raise kids in a godly home. And so when I have kids, then I will start taking my faith a little more seriously. And I'll pursue a relationship with Jesus. Man, my kids are driving me crazy. So maybe when my kids get a little bit older, then I'll have some time to actually put into my relationship with Jesus. Maybe when my kids get out of the house, I'll have some more time in my life to put into my relationship with Jesus. But someday, out there in the distance, I will put some effort and energy into developing a relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is saying, stop, 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 stop. And he's calling his disciples and you've got to live ready. You've got to live ready in a world of procrastination. You, the church, my disciples, you must be the ones who are ready. We live ready in a world full of procrastinators, in a world of procrastination. Everybody in this room has procrastinated at one point in time in your life or another. Some of you do it every day. But we must be people, and when it comes to this, when it comes to our faith, we're the people who live ready in a world of procrastination. Most Americans procrastinate, but most are not chronic procrastinators. It's pretty staggering. In the 1970s, about 5% of Americans were found to be chronic procrastinators. And by chronic, like a study was done, and what they meant by chronic was that in every area of my life, I just put everything off. Okay? I'm talking about my career and my family and my marriage and my kids and my, my friends and, and everything in my life and like of tomorrow to take care of itself, right? But that number has increased. Today, about 20% of Americans are chronic procrastinators, which is a big number. I would say a big 20% of us say, man, everything in my life, I'm just going to put it off. And now the younger you are, the more likely you are to put it off. All the parents in the room are like, yeah, of course you are, right? Anybody ever have a college student? Like, anybody anybody a little bit older than me? raise a college kid? Yeah. Do they procrastinate ever? Like, once in a while? Every every now and then? All the time. Studies show that around 50% of college students procrastinate in a constant and chronic manner. Okay? Half of college students are like, I just don't do anything. Tomorrow, it'll it'll figure it out tomorrow. 75% of them consider themselves to be procrastinators, and 80 to 95% of college students procrastinate. 80 to 95% of scholars students are like, yeah, ps- procrastinate. And half of them procrastinate, procrastinate all of the time. I just found this out not too long ago that in, that in Bountiful uh, in high school, and maybe this is true like in all of Utah, I don't know, um, that you can retake a test. You guys know this? It's like a thing. Everybody, everybody know this? Like you, you go, you take your test, and you don't like your score, you just go take it again. What? What are we doing to our children, man? Like, no wonder the procrastination's on the rise. I wouldn't study for anything. I'll just go take the test. If I don't like it, I, you know, I'll figure out what I did wrong and go take it again. I wouldn't study. I'd put everything off into the last minute. I can do the assignment again? Let's do that. That sounds great. Of course we do this. Procrastination is on the rise. And in some ways, we are all procrastinators. But I want you to know this doesn't mean you know, doesn't mean you're being lazy. There's a difference between procrastination and laziness. I read this article in the New York Times this week about procrastination, and it said this. I thought this was good. It says, if you've ever put off uh, an important task by, I don't know, let's say, alphabetizing your spice drawer. Anybody? You know, it wouldn't be fair to describe yourself as lazy. That's not lazy. After all, alphabetizing requires focus and effort. And hey, maybe you even went the extra mile to wipe down each bottle before putting it back. It's not like you were hanging out with your friends or watching Netflix. You were cleaning, something your parents would be proud of. This isn't laziness or bad time management. This is procrastination. What's fascinating in the text, Jesus doesn't call these girls lazy. They're sleeping. He doesn't call them lazy. He calls them foolish. Foolish. That's what procrastination is. It's it's foolish because it only hurts you primarily. You are the victim of your own procrastination, right? I am the victim of my own procrastination. Procrastination is derived from the Latin verb procrastinare, procrastinare, whatever, Latin. I didn't learn Latin. To put off until tomorrow is what it means, to put off until tomorrow. But it's also from the Greek verb, the Greek verb akrasia, akrasia, to do something against our better judgment. That's what's happening in this parable. These women are putting off until tomorrow something against their better judgment. They're, they're pushing it down the road a little bit against their better judgment. They know. They know it's going to be a long night. They know this party is going to be lit. And they need some oil for the lamps. But I'll get it later. It's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll, we'll wait till later. So probably go get some more oil now. Now I should probably get some more oil. But you know what sounds better? A nap. Somebody's going to procrastinate a little bit. because hey, Take a little nap and then I'll go get more oil. But you didn't need to sleep too long. We've all experienced this in some way or fashion in the room. Right, anybody in the room a last-minute Packer? Like, anybody? It's like all, all guys' hands. It's interesting. I wonder what that's about. We've all done this. Every lesser thing in your life is an opportunity to put off something until tomorrow. Every lesser thing in your life, right? Whether it's your kids, your career, your hobbies, time on your phone, time in games, YouTube. God, like the procrastination devil, YouTube. All enable us to easily put off until tomorrow. But here's the scary thing about procrastination there's always that real deadline. The airplane door will close, the paper will come due, and the wedding will start. And more than any of that, friends, listen, Jesus is coming back. This is the third time I've said it. This is not a feel good story, it's not a happy parable. Jesus is coming back. Everyone's invited to the feast. Not everybody makes it. Not everybody makes it. So many people in the world are putting off till tomorrow what they need to be doing today in order to live ready in a world full of procrastinators. We need to be a people who are living ready. Procrastination is harming us. It's harming you. So you must live ready in a world of procrastination or it will be too late. This parable is a warning for us. So then the question is, as we kind of turn the ship again for the last time, how do we do this? How do we, people who live ready in a world full of procrastinators, a world full of procrastination, how do we do this? How do we live ready for the return of Jesus? Well, I think we simply ask one really, really simple question. One simple question. What do Christians do in order to stay near Christ and to keep your relationship with him burning. Like, what do we do? How do we do that? Right? To extend the, the parable a little bit farther, maybe outside of the bounds of what Jesus meant. Um, but I think it's a good one. Right? What is the oil? Right? What is the oil that we're putting into our lives to keep it burning? God, to keep it burning. How do we stay ready? How do we stay engaged in our relationship with Jesus? And and the same way you stay engaged in any relationship is the answer. And and I could give you 50 things this morning, 50 things, but you guys don't have time for that. So I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you three really quickly. These three have been true for 2,000 years, and they'll be true for another 2,000 if the Lord tarries, okay? You want to be ready? First, primary. Primary is prayer. Prayer is primary. We must be a people of prayer. I don't know anyone ever, who has had a deep, vibrant, beautiful, flourishing relationship with Jesus in a rocky, turbulent prayer life. I don't think it's possible to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. It is not possible to know Jesus well, deeply and intimately, and not be a person who who is devoted to and committed to developing a life of prayer. Okay? It's not possible. And so here's a really, really easy question. Okay? Okay? How do I know if I'm ready? Tell me more about your prayer life. You want to know if you're ready? One easy question. How's your prayer life? How are you doing when it comes to prayer? I think that is the single marker of a people who are ready. Here at Flourishing Grace, man, we want to be a people who cry out and are devoted to prayer, people dependent on God. That's one of our pursuits, dependency. We want to be people who are dependent on God. The reason that so we be ready, so we can develop flourishing relationships with Jesus, and then we live as ready people with lamps burning, lives burning on fire for Him. I mean, we have a, we have a prayer room upstairs here at Flourishing Grace, and uh, we've opened it up for midday prayer, uh, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Thursday. And it's been amazing to watch some of you guys come in for midday prayer. Like, every time I see somebody come in, I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I'm going to pray. I was like... Oh, it's, a, like, it's so unbelievable. Somebody's like, yes, like, yes, like putting the oil into the lamp and saying, man, I'm just devoted to this thing. I, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want a relationship with Jesus. Why, why are, do so many people struggle in their lives of prayer? Right? I know not everybody. Some of you guys are men, you have unbelievable prayer lives. But for a lot of us, when I talk to people, like, that's the greatest struggle. I mean, I just struggle to pray regularly and, and consistently, I struggle with that. Another thing, the reason is procrastination. I mean, every morning at 8.45, every morning, I have an app on my phone, a prayer app, okay? and it reminds me to pray every morning at 8.45. Okay? It's awesome, except 8.45 is the time that I'm dropping my boys off at school. And so almost every morning at 8.45, um, I'll either lift up a prayer for them and kind of say, it's a sweet moment of praying for my boys, or, or I'll say, hey, as soon as I get into the office, as soon as I get into the office, I'll uh, spend some time in prayer. You know how that goes. I walk in the door, and, the, and, and my staff's here, and they, they ask me questions. They just, or I got 50 million things running through my mind. I got to get these tasks I gotta get done. Right? And I was like, I just put it off. just put it off a little bit. Just, just, I'm going to put this off for just five minutes as I drive to the church. It's no, no big deal. I'm just going to put it five minutes, and then it never gets done throughout the entire day. And I might accomplish 10 tasks that morning. I might accomplish 100 tasks that morning. But I did not keep the lamp burning. That's a big deal. You cannot abide in Jesus if you don't abide in prayer. And so let's be a people who commit to prayer every single day. Number two, number two out of three. Okay, we're almost there, friends. Time in the word. Time in the word, right? This book has been given to us as a gift from his hands. It's like, yeah, I want you to have this. I want you to have this, and it's critical to our relationship with Jesus. Not because primarily it's a source of knowledge. Yes, there's a lot of knowledge in this about God, about history, about all kinds of things, and I love all that stuff. But it's primarily a source of intimacy and nearness. That's why it's been given to you, not so that you might grow in knowledge, but so that you might grow in intimacy and nearness. I've been discipling one of our students here at Flourishing Grace, and they asked me, "I said, man, I, I want to." I want to learn how to read the Bible more. I was like, "Oh, this is awesome! Let's do this." I want to read the Bible more so that I can, uh, so that I can um, have verses in my mind and quote them like you quote them. And I'm like, "Oh, wait, hang on! Like, we're off the rails. Like, that's not that's not why we learn how to read the Bible. Uh, You can't approach the Bible as a place where you're going to have this information in your head and you're going to be able to impress people with your wow them with your smarts. Like, that's not what it's for. It's for intimacy. It's for nearness." You must read the Word of God for intimacy. you got to read it every day. God is the loving Father who's given you this complex gift. He says, curl up on my lap. Let me show you how it works. I, I want to open this with you. And friends, every day of your life, there's an invitation from your gracious and kind Father to put oil in the lamp to develop your relationship with Him. And one day, one day, if you do this faithfully, not only will your love for him grow, but your knowledge of him will grow. And when he returns, because he is coming back, it won't be an unfamiliar event. It will be an event that you've read about again and again and again and again. And the words that he speaks over you will be words that you've read about again and again and again and again. And you'll say, oh, man, I know you. he say, I know you too. I know you too. Come on in. Lastly, last one, gathering. We've got to commit to the gathering and engaging together right here, this gathering right here, but then also just gathering together as, as men and women in Christ, whether that's through table groups, Talked about table groups earlier, right? This idea of pouring into each other's lives, getting each other's eyes up and off the things of the world, because I know every single week, the moment you leave this room, okay, the world is pulling your eyes down. Look at your job, look at your career. Look at your money. Look at your bank account. Look at your marriage. It's going, it's going hey, crazy. You got to do something about it. Look at your kids. They're crazy. You got to do something about that. Look at this. Like pull your eyes down. This is what's important, right? Get your eyes on this. But the goal of this gathering is to get your eyes up. And there's, a, there's an easy correlation between those who gather regularly and say, This is a critical moment of my week every week, and those who are like, eh, Maybe once a month. Ah, you know, tomorrow I'll, I'll go next week. I'll go next. That's called procrastination. And as we procrastinate, as we become procrastinators, man, the, the the flame burns low, the oil runs out, and you can't just come in here once a month and try and try and get that steroid shot, that super gasoline oil, and just kind of this is going to get me through the next month. It doesn't work that way. In fact, once a week is not enough. That's why we form table groups. So that we can have regular experiences that get our eyes up off all the things in our lives and get them on Jesus. That's the goal. We need to engage in community. I don't think it's possible to have a burning relationship with Jesus and engage kind of in a life of isolation. We need each other. All of these things, they feed us. And there's so many others. Family devotions and books and volunteering and serving and having, forming accountability groups. All, all of these things, they, they feed us. They fan the flames all the more. As a pastor, I meet people all the time who are spiritually dry. Their, their lamp is out of oil. And I can't give them my oil, right? The, the, the foolish girls are like, give us some of your oil. Can't give somebody else your oil. You must do the work yourself. You must feel. You, you must allow him to fill your lamp. Jesus must become primary in our life. Our relationship with Jesus must become primary in our life. We must work to live ready every day in a world of procrastination, so that one day, when we hear the cry that the bridegroom is coming, when the angels in heaven are singing, we will be a people who are a ready people. This is what we're gonna do? I'm just gonna have you bow your heads. And just for a minute, we're going we're to enter into just a minute of reflection and response. Here at Flourishing Grace, I Man, as the Word goes out, as the Word goes out, we know the Spirit's doing something. There's always something in His Word for us, something that He wants to shape and mold us in our lives. And so that's the question. Spirit, what are you doing to me? What are you doing to me? What's the greatest source of my procrastination? What do I turn to? What affections, what distractions do I turn to in order to put off until tomorrow my relationship with Jesus? Spirit, what what are you calling me to get rid of in my life, to push out of my life so that I might be more focused on Jesus? Jesus. What distractions and some procrastinations have crept into my life? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a worry or a concern. What do I need to push out of my life? By the power of the Holy Spirit, what's He calling you? What's He calling you to push out? What do you need to bring into your life? What practices? What what oil needs to go in? I'm, I'm not... A man of prayer. I'm not a woman who's devoted to prayer. Spiritually, I am dry. That's why I'm here. No one in this room can give you their oil. What's the Spirit calling you to put in? Time in the Word, time in prayer, committing to a community, to a table group, or whatever that might look like. What needs to go into your life? For some of you, you have no lamp. You've never given your life to Jesus. Friends, I want you to hear this. He's coming back. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Light the lamp now. Let it burn. Keep it burning. I'm going to invite our prayer team up. i are just going to spend some time in reflection this morning. In a minute, we'll sing over one another. But during this time, they would love to pray those things in your life. They'd love to pray those things out of your life. Anything that's going on in your life, anything that's going on in your heart, anything that's going on right now, and they would love to pray over you. What's the Spirit doing in you right now? What's He prompting you to do? And they would love to pray that over you to spend a few minutes reflecting and we'll close with some worship together.